Welcome back to Rings and Realms. This week we're going to talk about The Rings of Power Episode 5, and whoa, there's a lot to talk about. Are you confused? Do you know people who are confused? You are in the right place. Today, we're going to try to sort all this out. The concept of hope comes into significant focus in episode five, and there are two different segments that I want to discuss in relationship to that. First, I want to talk about Bronwyn in particular. Bronwyn and Theo and Arondir, of course, as well. But, but Bronwyn is really the focal point. We have two major moments, two major speeches from Bronwyn, right? Once when she is standing up in the light of the sun, talking to everybody and encouraging them to band together and to fight. And that's, of course, right before Waldrig leads half of the people away, right, to go and uh, swear fealty to Adar instead. Um, but her message is a message of hope. She's encouraging them not to give up uh, and to believe that they can stand and that they can, uh, they can oppose the enemy and they can survive, right? But then, of course, we hear her own despair at the end of that same episode, when now half the people have left uh, and she believes that there's no way that they can possibly succeed uh, and she is wondering if there is any other alternative they have to giving up, right? And she's asking Arondir, show me any way, right? What other way is there to think that things are going to go? Now, the issue here is clearly hope and hope in a relatively simple sense, right? Do you believe that things might turn out well? Right? And she's asking people to hold on at first to the belief that things might turn out well, and she's herself struggling with that at the end of the episode. Now, the interesting thing to me here, uh, not only just sort of her struggle and the crisis that she's at at the end of the episode, um, but when she is having her crisis, when she's despairing or, or, or at risk of falling to despair at the end, um, she talks about their blood, right? And she begins to question can we even oppose it? Is there any good trying to, to be something different, trying to resist this pull of history, right? Um, it's in our blood. Maybe it's who we are. And she begins to despair of the idea that they can uh, turn away from their ancestors. Indeed, what we can see is that the kind of prejudice that the elves have borne against them, with the exception of Arondir, right, that uh, Arondir's captain and everybody, the prejudice that they held against the humans, are we just going to make it true? Are we going to be who they think we are? Are we going to fulfill those prophecies, basically, right? Um, and she is suggesting, she's wondering at least, do they have any choice, right? Is there any option? Um, can they really change? Is it just who they are? Are they stuck? Are they doomed uh, to follow in this path? But there's an interesting counterpoint right there within that same sequence. When Waldreg comes before Adar and Waldreg says he's going to uh, swear to serve and follow Adar, right? And Adar prompts him, right, to murder Rowan in order to seal his oath. And Adar tells him, only blood can bind. And that's a really fascinating correspondence with Bronwyn's concern about their blood. And what's interesting about it is that the two things actually point in completely different directions, 
right? Bronwyn's fear is no matter what we do, no matter what we choose, is there this destiny weighing upon us that's going to force us into this direction no matter what we opt for, right? No matter what we think. Whereas what Adar is saying about blood, it's about choice, right? That it doesn't matter who Waldreg is. It doesn't matter what he believes. It doesn't matter his tradition that he's hearkening back to, right, of serving the darkness. Instead, um, Adar says only blood can bind. Only the choice that you make, only if you choose to shed blood, are you going to be bound to our cause. So ironically, Adar's statement to Waldreg seems to me to offer hope to Bronwyn uh, that Adar at least does not believe that they are destined to follow in this path or he would just accept Waldrig uh, as soon as he shows up, right? But this whole sequence, the whole Southland sequence, is only one of two places uh, where hope emerges and it comes much more explicitly into focus itself in the other one, which is the conversation between Elrond and Gilgalad under the tree, the withering tree of Linden. Um, and there, I, I mention, I say it comes more into focus there because they not only are demonstrating hope and despair, uh, they actually discuss it. Like it, 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 it comes up when Elrond says, you know, am I going to, uh, to, to, to give up my oath, right? Am I going to break my oath for mere hope? And Gilgalad chastises him for that, right? and says hope is never mere, right? Um, and he talks about the eye of hope being the first to awake, you know, first to open and the last to close. Uh, you know, hope may be meager, but it's still powerful and everything else, right? Um, this is Gilgalad's message of encouragement to Elrond in that moment, seeming to want to strengthen his hope, which again, if we think back to the, the, the kind of spectrum we've already seen uh, with Bronwyn, that would seem to be a good thing, right? More hope is better. Uh, and uh, Elrond apparently needs encouraging there. But there's more going on here. A good deal more, I think. This is where it gets a little complicated. Tolkien had two different elvish words for hope. The concept of hope for Tolkien um, is divided between two things. So there's the elvish word amdir and the elvish word estel. Now, amdir means a looking up. In fact, they almost played on this word um, in, with, again, Arondir and Theo, actually. Uh, remember when Arondir is teaching Theo how to shoot? What does he tell him? And he repeats it twice. Lift your aim, right? Lift your aim. So lift your aim, Theo, right, is the way that he ends his conversation with Theo. And that's actually almost a paraphrase of the literal meaning of Amdir, which means to look up. Right. Um, and so in the, especially in the context right there when he's just about to have the conversation with Bronwyn about despair. Right. To 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 lift your gaze, to lift your aim um, is exactly what Amdir is about. So Amdir means positive thinking about outcomes. Right. Believing that things are going to turn out for the like, so you, you you're, you're trying to undertake something and uh, you think it's going to turn out well, right? If that's true, you have amdir. You have hope in that sense. Um, um, when somebody asks, like, is all hope lost? What they mean is, is amdir, do we, do we have any amdir left, right? Do we have any reason to believe this is going to turn out well? Estel is a quite different concept. Estel is much more like faith. Estel is a deep belief that things are going to turn out the way they're supposed to turn out, no matter what it looks like. Right? It's not about the success or the failure of the particular thing you're attempting to do. 
Um, and we can see this again and again. This is a major theme in The Lord of the Rings. When in the Council of Elrond in The Lord of the Rings, they talk about sending the ring to the fire and they're looking like there's, there's no real hope that that's going to succeed. I mean, it's a really low probability undertaking when they go to send the ring to the fire. They have no plan exactly as to how, how that can be accomplished. They do this not because they have umdir, because they're optimistic that it's going to pan out well, right? That they're going to succeed in doing the shrewd plan. They don't have a shrewd plan, right? Um, instead, they have estel. They have hope. They have trust that, this is how, that things are going to turn out the way they're supposed to turn out. Ultimately, it's less about hope that you're going to be able to do what you want to do and more about I'm letting things go and trusting that God has a plan, basically. Now, if we go back to Gilgalad and Elrond's conversation, there are two really interesting things I would draw your attention to here. First, Gilgalad's use of the word hope throughout that conversation sounds to me like umdir. He's not talking about Estel. He's not talking about trust that things are going to turn out the way that they're supposed to be. He is talking about hope, optimism, that things can still turn out the way we want them to turn out that we're going to be able to accomplish what we hope to accomplish, which in his case is the preservation of the elves and the resistance of the darkness, right? But he's not talking about Estel. I think pretty conspicuously, because here's the second thing. Notice what Elrond does as soon as that conversation is over. When he's done talking to, to Gilgalad, the camera watches him turn around and look up into the sky. Why is he looking up into the stars? He's looking towards his dad, of course. So on the one hand, this is the son looking towards his father and hoping to, you know, how can he follow in his father's footsteps, fulfill his legacy? This is a what would Arendel do kind of moment for, uh, for Elrond, clearly, right? But, but there's more. The star that is his father, right? The star in the sky that is Arendel's ship and the Silmaril is called in Middle-earth Gil Estel, the star of high hope. So his father's star is actually named Estel. So in that moment, we actually on camera see Elrond turning away from this discussion of Amdir and how are we going to work things out and instead turning up to Estel, to Gil Estel, the star of his father. Um, I would also recall uh, Galadriel's own terms when she was talking to Muriel back in episode four, right? She talked about faith and fear. Uh, the, the sort of the, the, as being the two options, right? Was Muriel going to choose faith or is she going to choose fear? Um, and in a lot of ways, that is similar to the, to the other way around, to the Estelle and Amdir dichotomy. Estelle is very much connected with faith. Fear, Amdir is associated with fear. Um, how much, how, how, how worried are you that your fears are going to come true is another way of saying how much Amdir do you have, right? And Gilgalad is clearly motivated by fear, not by faith in this conversation. Yet another reason that I think although he's arguing for hope, the hope that he's arguing for is suspect, and I think we should be a little bit concerned. More about Gilgalad and our concern about what the heck he's talking about later on.
Once again, this show gives us two significant instances of this theme, the friendship theme in this case, right? The first is the one we see from the very beginning of the episode, right? Nori and the stranger uh, sitting, looking like they're munching snails uh, together, which now the stranger has figured out how to eat properly, uh, and Nori teaching him words uh, and uh, telling him about their life, right? Um, and there are several things that are cool here. One thing that we can see, uh, the increase of comprehension, between them, as they're both not only better able to communicate as he is learning language, um, but they're better able to understand one another. Um, and we see both the comprehension and the, her acceptance of him, right? Her almost preemptive acceptance of him. The, uh, the sort of faith involved in her uh, say, telling him that he is good, right? Um, no, 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 you're not a peril, you're good, right? Um, is really touching, and of course, this is what we can see her sort of panicking about and wondering about at the end. But um, but we can see them helping each other, and yet there's still a distance, right? There's still clearly a distance between the two of them, not just in the understandably understandable freakout that Nori has at the end of the episode, but even before that, we can see the stranger is still a peripheral member of their family. We can see him kind of off to the side quite a bit. And then in, particu in particular, there's that one really striking shot uh, when Nori comes in and sees him standing under the moon and there's something alien about him there. Um, and she's just sort of, she's at a distance looking at him as he is not looking back at her, right? It's, it's not one of those reciprocal friendship moments, right? Um, and so we can see the way in which they are, they are together and yet they're still they're still apart. They're coming together and they're helping one another. She is helping to teach him. She is helping to feed him, right? Um, and of course, we see him protecting uh, them uh, in this episode as well. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm, I, I love seeing her friendship with him begin to grow. It felt much more, um, much more of, of an equilateral friendship uh, between the two of them. And in particular, I'm kind of wondering how Poppy's character is going to be developing. Thinking about Nori and, Nori and Poppy have been one of the clear sort of friendship uh, um, elements of this entire show. Um, and now Nori is spending a lot of time with a stranger and very little time with Poppy, um, as we see Poppy actually in kind of a bigger context after we learned about the death of her family in episode three, and now coming back in episode five, we see her, you know, the rest of the family asking for her song and stuff. Um, so there's a lot going on there. Um, and I'll be interested to see, again, Poppy's character development as we move forward. But Durin and Elrond, Durin and Elrond are the big friendship moment from this, uh, from this episode. And I found it so moving. Uh, Durin and Elrond, I love those characters. I love their relationship and how that's moving through. Um, the issue of loyalty, right? Elrond is not merely just saying, I can't break an oath because that's a bad thing to do. Like, that would have destructive consequences. I mean, it would, and he does say that. But it's not just that. Right? He is also showing loyalty to his friend, as he emphasizes. Right, I love that exchange with him and Gilgalad, where Gilgalad says that your loyalty to the dwarf is admirable, and Elrond says, you, know, you mean my loyalty to my friend. Right? Um, that is clearly an essential thing, and the fact that he's being pressured to betray that oath, to betray his friend, is one of the m number one things that leads me to believe not all is right in the state of Linden. Um, but in particular, I loved the understanding 
between the two of them, right? It's not just the kind of high-pressure moments of Elrond sticking to his friend uh, that were so cool. Uh, just watching the way that they understand one another, right? The glances that they exchange, the way that, uh, that, that Elrond immediately gets, uh, just from hearing Durin chuckle, right? Uh, he immediately understands that the whole thing about the table was made up, right? Um, and um, my f- one of my very favorite moments in all of episode five uh, was Durin's line uh, when he says, enough with the quail sauce. I've been talking already uh, in earlier episodes of this show about how Elrond keeps using this flowery diplomatic language and Durin keeps cutting through it, right? Um, quail sauce is now officially the nomenclature uh, for the fancy language that Elrond uses to try to build up to things, right? Enough with the quail sauce. Give me the meat and give, me, give it to me raw, right, is what, uh, is what Durin wants. That kind of honesty, right, that kind of frankness, that kind of clarity between friends. But then the compassion, right? We know how much the mithril means to Durin. We know how concerned. He's just found out that all of his most paranoid fears were true. Um, you know, Elrond had been chastising him for his suspiciousness, Right, that Elrond is like, I've been honest with you, and you've not been honest with me. You've been continuing to try to hide things from me. Why? Why was Durin doing that? Because he was paranoid that there was some conspiracy that the elves wanted their mithril for themselves. And now Elrond has just confirmed not only that the elves actually do want all the dwarves' mithril for themselves, but even that his entire mission there turns out to have been motivated by exactly that. Durin was right all along. Right? And instead of responding to that with anger, instead of, uh, you know, even with a kind of pride, right? I, you know, my low opinion of elves has been uh, roundly confirmed, right? Instead, Durin's immediate response is compassion, right? His choice, which is a major, major choice. We're going to not only move ahead with the mining of Mithril, but we're going to do that in order to give it to the elves, right? I mean, that is like an abandonment of Durin's entire vision for the future of his people for the sake of benefiting the elves and his friend, right? And yet Durin doesn't even seem to question it, right? Um, the way that he begins immediately teasing Elrond, uh, which is just absolutely my favorite. The, um, the parts, you know, uh, 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 you know, the fate of the elves are in whose hands, right? Um, you can see immediately, you know what he's going to do. Elrond knows what he's going to do. That kind of understanding uh, between the two of them um, and how that just is, it clearly comes before other things which seem to be more important. While Gilgalad is putting pressure on Elrond to say, the fate of your people should be more important than your oath, right? Here's Durin, immediately, without question, surrendering his vision for the future of his people in order to help and to save his friend. Um, And I think that that correspondence really says something. Okay, for the light and darkness theme, we need to first remember what the terms of this theme are, right? It's not just about light versus darkness or something like that. Remember that Finrod established the basic vocabulary for our understanding of this theme way back in episode one, right? And we were told two things that were very important. One uh, was that it was about the distinguishing between light and light. We've talked about this several times, right? Looking up 
towards the real light or looking, being distracted and looking at the other light, but you're actually looking down, right? Because remember, the stone looks down and the ship looks up. Um, so looking up is the good thing towards the true light and not getting distracted by that, uh, by that fake light. And the second point was that touching the darkness part, right? How can you tell the one light from the other? Sometimes you can only tell when you've touched the darkness, says Finrod. So those are the, we need to retain our memory uh, of these basic terms of vocabulary because we see these things coming into play in this episode fairly clearly, but within some kind of confusing contexts. First, I want to touch briefly on the incredibly creepy scene just when you thought Adar couldn't get any creepier uh, when he's looking up at the sun. Right, and deliberately sunburning the, his orc companion. Now, so deep seems to be the level of delusion in which Adar is habitually living uh, that when he started talking about the sun not being there anymore, I was fully thinking, my first reaction to this was that Adar has some strategy to destroy the sun. And I was like, what's Adar going to do to destroy the sun? I, I think probably what he means is he's going to blot out the sun by cloud cover, right? He's going to cover the world in shadow as a, as a sort of a, a, a anticipation, right, of what Sauron does at the end of The Lord of the Rings or what Morgoth did uh, around Thangorodrim uh, in the first stage. So presumably that is actually what he's thinking about. But if you look at that scene, um, the scene when he's staring up at the sun, which begins with him looking, you see the sunlight filtering down through the trees. Um, he's looking up, and he's looking up at the true light, right? And yet... He is deliberately turning away from that because Adar lives in this upside-down world, right? He, he told Arondir that everything that he's been told is lies, right? That the world that Arondir is living in is not the real world. He has these fundamental beliefs about, you know, who the Valar are, what's right and what's wrong, right? All of these things. We don't even know exactly what it was because he didn't tell us yet. Adar didn't tell us yet. Wait, what are some of these lies, right? And yet... Um, it's coming. I can't wait to hear a fuller version of Adar's theology. I've been waiting for this with bated breath ever since he said those lines. But it's, we can see the reversal, right? As he's looking up at the true light, um, and he thinks it's a false light. He's going he's gonna, to uh, gonna blot it out. And yet at the same time, he says when the sun gets blotted out, that that which can still feel the warmth of the sun is going to be blotted out of him as well. Like there's something that still has the old orientation, the old loyalties, the old way of looking at the world still within him that he is deliberately setting out to destroy. He's like a ship which is deliberately going to turn itself into a rock, right, and sink down to the bottom. Um, He's a fascinating kind of counterstudy to all these other things happening. But I can't delay it any further. It's time to talk about the song of the roots of the Hithiglir, the story which um, Gilgalad compels Elrond to recite to him. Now, okay, Um, first, let me begin by saying um, this segment uh, has been brought to you by Elrond's skeptical face, right? I I want you to remember throughout, as I myself have been throughout this past week, clinging to the vision of Elrond's skeptical face as Gilgalad brings up this story and asks, no, not asks, (laughs) compels, as I said, Elrond to recite it. Elrond says that many think this is apocryphal, and his expression tells me that he's being polite there, Um, that, in fact, he believes this to be thoroughly dubious and does not seem to believe it at all. 
Um, again, as I say, I have been taking a certain amount of refuge in, in Elrond's skepticism during the course of this past week. There are three levels on which, on which one could object, I would say, uh, to the song of the roots of the Hithaiguir. Um, I'm not even going to get too much into the first two, so let me, let, me, let me go through them really quickly. One, there are many people who have said, who have just stumbled at the threshold, right? Who have said, okay, hang on, wait, wait, wait. There's a Silmaril in a tree? What, what, what Silmaril? How did it get in a tree on top of a mountain? Like, how does that work, right? Um, and uh, I'm not even, like, I'm not even. I, I, it's fine. I'm, 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 I'm accepting that, right? I'm accepting that, or that is, that's not where I think the issue lies, right? That's not what I want to focus on in discussing how this fits into the light and darkness theme. Um, so for the sake of the discussion I'm about to have, I'm accepting as given that story in some sense. I'm not saying there's no objections to be made. I'm just saying it's not what we're, not what we're going to talk about. The second level on which I think one could object uh, to the Song of the Roots of the Hithaiguir is that Gilgalad seems to be taking this as a historical narrative, right? Gilgalad's response to this suggests that he believes that this sort of origin myth of Mithril is in some sense literally true. And this was the thing, while I was watching it live, I was having the hardest time with. I, I did have a brief twinge where I was like, last Silmaril? Which one is the last? And how did it get in a tree? Like, those questions totally crossed my mind. But they were immediately swamped by the images that I was seeing in front of me. And those images are of the elf warrior and the Balrog. But it's not like elf warrior versus Balrog. I'm down for that. Like, in fact, I'm quite into that. If we could get to see, you know, Glorfindel fighting a Balrog, right? I'm, I'm here all day long for that, right? But of course, it's not what we see. Instead, we see an elf warrior. Do, I don't even know what he's doing. Somehow infusing light and goodness into a tree, right? Whereas the Balrog on the other side is like infusing darkness into it. Some, so it's this like bizarre sort of metaphysical struggle that they're in. And like just for like public service announcement, that's not how you fight a Balrog. Like that's just, it's not how it's done. Um, you need to push them off a cliff. You need to stab them with your hat and drown them in water. There are several verified techniques about how to fight Balrogs. Putting your hand on the root of a tree and, and you know, uh, uh, using the force, not how it works. Um, in other words, the whole picture, especially the way that it's visually presented to us uh, with the elf shining white on the one hand and the Balrog with his very appropriate wings of flame or shadow rather on the other hand and his whip of flame. Um, those things were all like, it was, it's, it's, it's a beautiful image, right? But it feels entirely like an allegorical fable. This does not sound like it's describing, uh, this, it does not sound like a historical narrative at all. It's presenting these concepts, right? Where you have these three different elements that is the Silmaril, containing the light of the trees in the middle. And by the way, Silmaril in a tree is kind of like a way of saying it's a shadow of the trees of Valinor, right? I mean, it's literally the light of the trees in a tree, right? So this tree becomes the, like, sort of um, echo, right, of the trees of Valinor within the context of this little allegorical myth fable. Um, and then you've got, like, the force of darkness on the one hand and the force of light on the other hand. So those, the Silmaril in the middle and the light and the darkness, and then... There's lightning, 
Um, and Zappo, there we go, now we're extracting somehow the, well, I don't even know what, the light, I guess, which is somehow the light is infused with the light and the darkness, and, and then it goes in and makes the mithril, right? Now, like I said, um, my question is not whether this myth can work as a sort of mythic understand, mythical understanding of the founding of Mithril. What I am saying is that um, it clearly is functioning as a myth. It's a fable. It's not like, if I heard this story, the last question that would ever occur to my mind would be, oh, and I wonder where exactly that tree was located, where this historical event occurred. Like, it does not sound like a historical event at all, right? And yet, Gilgalad seems to completely assume that it's a historical event. So that was the second thing I found rather odd about this. But um, I'm not going to talk about that either. So that was me not talking about that. Um, the third thing, the third level on which there's a difficulty with the Song of the Roots of the Hithiglir is um, let's accept it. Let's accept it. Let's, okay, Silmarillion tree, no problem, right? Who knows? Can happen. Um, Balrog, elf, you know, like, whatever, using the force, lightning, strike. Okay, granted that it happened. Let's just grant that it happened, right? Um, what does it mean? What does it show? How does it fit in? This is one of the most overt light and darkness tableaus we've received in this entire show, right? Um, we must remember the vocabulary that we were given to understand this. And what's the result? What's the result? Of, what's the outcome of the myth? Well, the answer is... It, literally, a light down below, right? Mithril. Um, this, it's not the light of the trees. The Silmarils have the actual light of the trees contained in them, right? It is a reflection, an absorption, in some sense, of the light of the trees. In fact, there has not been a single moment in this entire show which more perfectly, almost exactly on the nose, appears to embody what Finrod said, right, what Finrod described about that other light, that distracting light, the light that is not the true light, right? Um, this light literally down at the roots of the mountain, which is, again, literally a derivative of, a reflection of the true light, which is the light of the trees, right? Um, that's what we see. Now, unfortunately for him, Gilgalad did not receive this wisdom from Finrod, right? Um, but we got that benefit. And so for this reason alone, everything else aside, as I said, not even counting levels one and two, um, everything else aside, that alone, the way in which this light and darkness theme has been moving through this, this show makes me deeply skeptical. Indeed, I feel like I have been prepared by the show, not by any external objection, not by me saying, oh, that's not how it worked in Tolkien. That doesn't make sense from a Tolkien perspective. None of that. Right? Within the context of this show itself, the terms of how this theme has been discussed suggest to me that their idea, Gilgalad's idea, Celebrimbor's idea of Mithril, what it is, what it means, what it can do, is mistaken, is a false light. Now, maybe I'm wrong about that, who knows, um, but, um, but I, that seems to me, what, as we've been discussing this theme week by week, um, that's what I feel like I, I am all set up for, right? Um, it wasn't the idea, the mere idea that it's violating Tolkien lore in some way, but that that whole song felt wrong from within the show itself. All of my alarm bells were going off saying, 
don't believe this, this isn't true. Um, and once again, I returned to my closest friend over this past week, Elrond's skeptical face. He does not seem to buy this either and does not seem to believe or, or think much of this story, even as a story, much less is, does he seem to be comfortable with the conclusions that they're drawing from it. Okay, so one of the things we've been looking for from the very beginning was the link between the Numenorians and death. It's one of the primary things that we see. It's one at the heart of the fall of Numenor is their concern about their mortality and their desire, their desire to rebel against that, right? And so far, we've seen no shadow of that uh, in the show. Um, death, mortality hasn't really come up. We've seen some very indirect things, but nothing much clear. Well, I just wanted to mention briefly, we got one background reference that I thought was very, very interesting about this. If you remember the party that they're having in Numenor down at the bar, right before they step out to the punching alley in order to punch Isildur, um, they're singing a song, right? The Numenor song, and it's, it's, it's like a very patriotic Numenor song. Now, you won't have noticed this unless you watch with the subtitles on because it's happening in the background and you can barely hear it. But at the end of the verse that they're singing, right as Isildur comes in and Volandil is uh, leaving to go talk with Isildur, um, the last line of the verse is our swords to conquer death. They're singing about how wonderful Numenor is uh, and, uh, uh, you know, like grace upon them and everything. And, and, and they're, they're, they're asking within the song that their swords would conquer death. The idea that death is out there as an enemy who at least should ideally be conquered in the perfect Numenor that they're describing is our first clear hint uh, that death is going to be really important. So it's, it's, it was a, a nice little piece of foreshadowing. I want to touch on the other big mortality issue, which was looming much more significantly over this episode, and that's where it relates to the elves. Now, you may recall back in episode zero, when I was setting things up for the season, one of the things that I said when I was talking about how I thought that death and mortality was going to be a really important theme, not just for the humans and the Numenorians, but for everybody, including the immortal elves, right? Um, what I was talking about there was change, right? The way that the rising of the sun begins to bring about change in Middle-earth. Middle-earth begins to change and the elves themselves begin to diminish and to fade and that this is a, a sort of a newish thing for them, right? Um, this was not how elves were back in the days of the trees and stuff. Um, so we see this really come into play here during episode five, right? The idea of the diminishing, the fading of the elves comes in and it's quite clear that People are freaked out about it, right? Gilgalad is freaked out about it. Celebrimbor seems to be freaked out about it. Um, Elrond sounds a little freaked when he's talking to Durin about it, right? Um, they talk, speak of it as destruction, right? Um, so there are a couple things that I want to emphasize briefly here. One is we can see this coming up as a primary issue for them as I expected it to be. And in that line, there's one thing I would want to emphasize. Um, again, this is a change. It's only during the course of the Second Age. Th this will have begun. The process of the fading and diminishing of the elves will have had its beginnings at the rising of the sun. But 
you know, the end of the first age, the sun was up for a few hundred years, but the elves were busy, right? They were in their war with Morgoth. They had other things to think about at that time, right? During the course of the second age, therefore, and again, as I explained in episode zero, is, how, is, is the time when I expect to see within the show the elves wrestling with this idea that the elves are going to diminish, that they're going to fade, and that they're going to sort of drop into irrelevance in a sense, as you know, the, the, the time of the elves is going to end uh, and the time of men is going to begin, as we see, happen, coming to completion at the end of the third age, right? But again, that transition will start in the second age. Now, um, they seemed, a lot of people were confused, expressing confusion about the fact that, like, Gilgalad was talking about this, Elrond was talking about this as if it was a news flash, right? Um, and they do talk about it that way. And actually, I think that that makes a good deal of sense. The elves don't know. They don't understand. They don't really get the fading. They don't get the diminishing. It's only during the course of the Second Age that they're beginning to understand, beginning to confront the idea that that is, in fact, their fate in Middle-earth, that that's where things are headed, right? So if you're confused about, don't forget, we Tolkien fans tend to be coming at this story, we're coming at this story from the end of the Third Age, when that's well established. The elves have now had millennia to reconcile themselves to this idea. They know that they're fading and that they're going to go into the West, right? But that was not a given from the beginning. And this is, of course, important, even in a political sense, as we discussed before. When the elves choose to stay into the Second Age, or I should say the elves who choose to stay, they're setting up kingdoms. For what? What's their goal? What are they working towards? What are they hoping to accomplish, right? The fading, the idea of the diminishing, whatever that is, the fading and the diminishing works against it, right? And is going to be undermining that. It could, because in the end, as we know from the perspective of the end of the Third Age, it's all going to pass away. It's all going to pass away and become only a memory within the kingdoms of men, right? So remember, we're thousands of years before that point, and now it, this idea, this concept, they're just starting to wrestle with this concept in the Second Age. I believe that that's where we are. I believe that's where the show is showing us to be there at the beginning, uh, uh, in, in the Second Age, where we're seeing. But now, if the fading that's described by Gilgalad and Elrond still seems a little bit more intense than you expected still doesn't seem quite right based on how the diminishing of the elves is described in the books. You're not alone in that. Stay tuned. We'll come back to this later on. Now, people are thinking and talking about fate in one sense, fate and doom. Uh, you know, everyone's worried about destruction, right? Uh, the doom of the people in the Southlands, or at least the doom of the people who stayed in the tower in the Southlands, the doom of the entire Elvish race, apparently, right? Lots of, uh, lots of people worrying about their fate big picture, right? But remember, that's not the kind of fate, not the kind of doom uh, that we're interested in in this theme. Here, the theme that we've been tracking has been that sense of destiny, right? That sense of uh, purpose, that there is some guiding purpose behind things, and some characters are really picking up on that. Nori, of course, has been the most sensitive to the idea of fate throughout the show so far. Um, very few things in that theme 
uh, really came to my attention very forcibly in episode five, but there was one moment that I think raises a really important thing that I wanted to mention, and that's Tar Palantir's prophecy. When Muriel is trying to reassure Tar Palantir, her father, right, her aged father, who I was afraid was dying at the end of the last episode, but apparently didn't die, um, so, because there he was. Oh, wait, a brief note about his name. Um, Tar Palantir was named Tar Palantir before Tolkien invented the Palantiri. Uh, that is, the seeing stones are called a Palantir, right? Um, the word Palantir means that which looks afar. Um, and uh, so it's about being distant, like being able to see into the distance. Um, and so, of course, it's uh, more literal when it's used as the, as the name of these stones, right? You use the stone to be able to look off into the far distance. Um, but before those seeing stones were invented by Tolkien, he had already named this king of Numenor Tar Palantir. He was named the Farsighted, right? Because he saw into the future. He was one of the most explicitly um, uh, prophetic figures uh, in, uh, in Tolkien. Not the only one, but one of the most significant ones. He sees what's coming. He sees into the future. And therefore, he has this, so he, he's this prophet king at the end of Numenor's, near the end, not the very end, but near the end of Numenor's story. Um, so I think a lot of people, given that we saw the Palantir at the same time that we met Tar Palantir, right, they're in like practically adjacent rooms in that tower, um, has, I think, perhaps created a kind of association which really undermines the significance of his name. So I was delighted by the fact that Tar Palantir makes a prophecy in episode five that I wanted to, to draw attention to. Um, because it also illustrates a really important principle that I believe we can see acting in many of Tolkien's works. And that's what I would call the Oedipus effect. Uh, namely, um, like in the famous story of Oedipus Rex, right? When you, take, when you receive a prophecy, an unpleasant prophecy, of something that's going to happen in the future, and you take steps in order to prevent that prophecy from happening, and in doing so, by trying to avoid the prophecy, you end up doing the things which, in fact, bring the prophecy about, right? Uh, and, you, and the story of Oedipus is full of multiple examples of this. His parents do it, he does it, right? If they had all just not tried to avoid the prophecy, everything would have been fine. Um, but, of course, they do, and so they bring about the prophecy. This same thing we can see happening within Tolkien's works at several points. In particular, we can see this happening in the Turin Turambar story in the Silmarillion. But um, we get a reference to this concept in Tar Palantir's prophecy. Muriel is trying to reassure him, as I started saying before. She's trying to reassure him, hey, Dad, guess what? It's great now right? You've been worried. You've foreseen in the Palantir, right? You've foreseen the end of Numenor. He was trying to get everybody to turn back. He, he was doing this, right? He was trying to encourage everybody uh, to turn back to the old ways so as to prevent this future. But of course, you notice what happened when he did that? What happened? They rebelled against him. In fact, it, his attempt to turn Numenor back to the old ways has accelerated Numenor's abandonment of the old ways, right? Farazan has risen to power in part because of the things that Tar Palantir was doing in order to prevent the bad things from happening, right? Um, and now Muriel is doing the same thing. Muriel believes, it seems, she believes that by leading the expedition into Middle-earth, she is going to prevent the future. 
that they've seen in the Palantir, and she tries to reassure him, hey, it's, it's going to be fine, right? And his response is, don't go to Middle-earth. All that you will find there is darkness, right? And d darkness in that context, by the way, very much tied with the ends of these horrible figures whose dooms are prophesied and who end up working themselves into their own dooms. Um, uh, whether it's Oedipus who puts out his eyes at the end of his story in order to blind himself, or whether it's Turin Turambar who ends saying to one of his friends, now comes the night, right, as the final truth uh, of his doom closes around him at the end of his story. And Tar Palantir says to Muriel, you will only find darkness in Middle-earth. And so I think we can see this Oedipus effect coming into play and fate uh, working against Muriel's plans. I've been interested in the healing theme from the beginning. Um, one of the main things that I saw from the very first two episodes was the need for healing. Right, many people who seem to be suffering and in pain. Um, and uh, who knows, perhaps I called this the healing theme uh, because I thought it might be too depressing to call it the wounded, the like wounds and injuries theme. Um, but we do actually see some healing happening, I think, in more than one way in this episode, which was kind of a nice change for many of them so far. Um, first, I want to touch on The Stranger and Nori. Of course, the crisis point in that little plot line comes in with The Stranger's healing of himself. Now, let me say a quick word about that, because I think that his... Uh, wounding of his own arm uh, there has uh, fits very well with the idea of his being a newly incarnated wizard, uh, as I've been suggesting. One obvious question becomes: What? Why? Why is he bruised? Like, why does he like break all these blood vessels uh, in his arm uh, when he does his uh, his concussion wave thing, uh, right? With the with the wolves, and. Um, I think, to, to me, this makes a lot of sense, again, especially if he is a wizard. Uh, remember that if he is a wizard, what this means is that he's never had a body before. He's never been restricted to a body. Um, so what I felt that I was looking at there in that scene was somebody who has always been a spiritual being, who was trying to exert some of his power the way that he would exert his power, but he forgot he had a body. He doesn't understand how his body works, and the limitations of his physical body. Um, so when he slams uh, his hand and arm down on the ground, he bruises himself fairly significantly, um, which seems to take him by surprise. Um, as no wonder if he's quite new to the idea of having a body, and if he's incarnated in that body as simply and fully as the wizards in fact are. Um, but anyway... He's, he's wounded, and he needs to heal himself, right? And so we get the scene of his, uh, his renewing of his arm, right? He's, he's chanting, and we've got the frost moving up his arm. I'm not sure yet what to do with the frost. I'm still thinking a lot about heat and cold in this show, right? Whether it's the fire that wasn't hot in episodes one and two, or whether it's the... Um, whether it's the, uh, the, this frost, which seems to be 
healing or harming, right? It certainly freaks Nori out and seems to hurt her uh, while she's, well, her own hand is getting frozen with his, right? She responds out of friendship, right? She responds out of concern for him, trying to touch him and, and I think probably to pull his arm out of the water where she sees it freezing, right? Um, and instead she herself gets frozen along with him and is understandably freaked out thereby, right? Um, the, the way in which healing and harming is sort of brought together into sort of uncertainty and confusion there at the end um, seems, of course, to correlate back to the peril and help idea in their first conversation in that episode, where he's not sure whether he thinks he might be a peril, right, because he brings danger. He killed the fireflies, and he seems concerned about that, uh, and he's afraid he's going to bring danger to them as well, that he's one of the perils of their journey. And she responds, absolutely not, you're good, right? And she emphasizes, because you help, right? You help, so you're good. You're not danger. You're not a peril. You're not doing harm. Um, and so, but we see him do harm to her, except she's not harmed. Her hand is fine afterwards, right? As indeed his hand is. We see it's that same hand that he reaches towards her with at the very end when she runs away, and it has, in fact, been healed, right? So we see that um, he is capable of healing. He is capable of, uh, of, 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 of doing that, but it's dangerous or at least scary, right? So I'm going to see, uh, I'm going to be following that to see where that comes through too. The way that those ideas of healing and harming came together was interesting. But there was a second scene where we made even more significant progress on healing, and that is Halbrand and Galadriel. So Halbrand and Galadriel do some mutual confessing here uh, in, the, in the big scene that they have in the, uh, in the forge, right? Um, where she pursues him, she begins by apologizing to him, and he confesses his shame, right? He confesses his shame that if she knew, if the people of Numenor knew what he had done, right, who he was and what he came from, not just the place that he comes from, but what he had done back there, right? Um, that they would all want nothing to do with him, right? Um, and she characterizes, I think, accurately, right, that he is trying to ease his pain um, with a hammer and tongs, right? That is, he's trying to bury himself in work to build this new life for himself that he keeps saying he wants to have to establish here in Numenor to be able to start again with a clean slate, right? And she says, you're, you're, just, you're just trying to ease your pain. Real, and it's not going to work. Right? Real healing for that wound within him is not going to come that way. It's not going to come uh, from just trying to leave it all behind and start again, which is his goal. Right? But even more importantly, seeing this and telling him about this inspires something in Galadriel. She makes more progress towards self-knowledge in this episode than I think we've ever seen. I've said before that I have a great deal of skepticism about almost everything Galadriel has ever said. Right? I don't think she really understands things, and I don't think she's been honest with herself most of the time. Um, in episode five, I think we see Galadriel being more honest with herself, and she, both when she says that um, she can't stop fighting because she doesn't know how to stop fighting. Um, it is clear that it is not an issue. With Galadriel, the, the point of Galadriel's character is not the elevation of the warrior concept, right? She is not just being put forward as this warrior ideal, 
that we're supposed to revere as the great hero, right, because of her skill with the sword. She is skilled with the sword, and she clearly enjoys it. Um, I quite loved, by the way, the fighting scene, uh, the training scene, the sword training scene with the Numenorean uh, cadets. That was really fun. Um, not just because I actually quite enjoyed the, uh, the fighting sequences and thought her advice quite good uh, about sword fighting, but also um, she seemed to be enjoying herself so much, right? Um, so there's some, there's some real joy. There's some real pleasure in that. There's nothing wrong with that in a sense. But when it's the only thing in your life, right, it's, it's quite clear that Galadriel's life is messed up and needs healing, as we've been saying. And she was seeing this for the first time. Right? It's clearly not good that she has no idea what to do other than swing a sword. Right? She doesn't know how to stop. Um, but more than that is the question of how can she ease her pain because swinging the sword is not doing it. Killing orcs isn't doing it. Right? But the core of the confession that she makes is that she admits, perhaps even realizes, that the reason that she was getting betrayed, right? Why her, uh, her troops wouldn't follow her, right? Why they mutinied against her. Um, why Elrond conspired with Gilgalad to send her across the sea, right? Now, this is tough because we know Elrond's motivation. I believe Elrond when he said to her, he wants her to go across the sea because he wants her to find healing there, right? But um, she says that none of them could tell the difference between her and that which she was fighting. And remember I talked a while back in that first episode about that moment when she sees her own reflection and punches herself in the face? I think that we can see that in her too, that a lot of the self-loathing that she seems to be feeling seems also to be tied to the fact that on some level she also doesn't see the difference between herself and that which she is fighting, right? But in the midst of all this, she says there's only one way that they can actually ease their pain. There's only one way in which they can find healing, and that's the path across the sea is the only path that leads to this. Now, this was a rather surprising thing to hear Galadriel say, she who turned away from the path across the sea, right? Again, Elrond insisted that was the only way that she could find healing. She resisted that. She didn't think that she, could, she would just be taking her pain and making her pain undying in the Undying Lands, right? It's almost like she felt that she would be polluting Valinor if she went there, right? She, she has not abandoned Valinor. It's not that she doesn't want to go. She does acknowledge, she did recognize, this is the only way that her pain can be eased. This is the only place where she is gonna find healing. But then, at the very end, I felt it went sour a little bit. Sour because she still talked about earning her trip across the sea, right? Um, and she talked, she was challenging Halbrand to earn his trip across the sea, right? Um, and, and there was also an interesting kind of double entendre there where she was saying the only way to ease your pain is, the, the only path that will lead to the easing of pain is the path across the sea, right? Um, but of course, which way across the sea? The only way that's going to ease her pain is this, to go across the sea west to Valinor. While at the same time, she seems to be saying to Halbrand, the only way that's going to ease your pain is to go east, back to Middle-earth, confront your past, and overcome it, right? Um, so 
what exactly does earning a trip across the sea look like? Is it right to think in terms of earning the trip? I'm not sure she has, she, she had some good moments of self-realization, but I don't think she's still yet all the way there. So I think this was an important moment, but not the end by any means of this healing trajectory for her. So we'll have to keep watching uh, to see how that continues to progress. Um, there's a lot to discuss today, right? <laughs> episode five was really interesting. Feels incredibly different than episode four. Um, I'm really hoping episode six ties this together because five felt very much like a filler episode. There wasn't a lot of change from the end of episode four to the end of episode five, but there were things that moved along that I think are going to tie in well with six. We've all been told to wait till episode six or seven, something's going to happen. So, okay, I'm waiting. Um, I also saw something online about where we are in this world right now compared to Jackson's trilogy that's sticking with me. At this point in the trilogy, uh, the hobbits have met Strider in a pub. That's how far into the story we are. So we have a very long way to go. And like we said, we're here for the long game, so we'll see. Um, also some good news, I'm 99% sure I'm going to be with Corey in the studio for the finale. So if you're new to this, I live in the UK, which is why my production is so much different <laughs> than what Corey's set up with. We did the intro episode together while I was out there, but I'm going to fly back for the finale. So that's exciting. So in this episode, I want to just go through two scenes. I'm going to take a look at the song in the beginning that the Harfoots sing as they're traveling. And I'm going to take a look at the dinner scene between Durin and Gilgalad um, and really look at some of the film language. Corey is going to talk about the actual lyrics of the song later on and talk about the lore and how it, how it tells us thing, what it tells us. Um, but I want to look at the film language. So starting with the Harfoot song, it's a journey song. You know, have your mom sing your, your mom's song. Will you sing it to us? So that shows that it was passed down. And the first time I heard it, I just thought it was a lovely melody. Found myself singing it. The more and more I listen to it, the more beautiful it's kind of sinking in into my soul. And it feels very nostalgic and lovely and I know there was a very strong emotion um, from both fans and casual viewers for it so I feel like it hit the tone right of nostalgia but the more I look into it it's also quite purposeful um, the lyrics themselves are a bit of a map it does feel like they are talking about their own migration their own journey um, so when we go into this filmically and looking at that first shot we have this beautiful wide shot of them walking through the valley um, of Middle-earth, some gorgeous valley in New Zealand. Um, but we started with this really wide establishing shot and all of the movement from in this scene is left to right. So I've said that before in road movies, the travel moves from left to right, it shows forward progression, it's just a, a device used in filmmaking. But we also have a really slow pan out um, as the movement is moving from left to right and the movement is in the bottom third of the frame. So they're moving from like the middle of the screen down to the bottom right as the map and the camera are both moving. So we have a lot of movement, but it's all really gentle and in the right direction. So this zoom out, this walk down, and then the map starts to kind of fade in. I love the map as well. Uh, it just feels like a nice little Indiana Jones moment, but very Middle Earthy. So we have this pan out, we have this forward progression, we're ready, you know, this is setting us up, it's a beautiful journey we're about to embark on. Lovely pace, easy, friendly, you know, everyone's fairly healthy, minus the, the foot situation. And, and then the map starts to pan 
that go south as the camera pans down. Um, so we have this down, we have this down, and then this very slight up and kind of a slower, it's not static because it is moving, but it's a slower straight shot when their cart is stuck in the marshes. Um, and that's quite nice movement wise too, because we had this move south, we had this pan up and then, oh, we're stuck. We're stuck. So the camera actually sticks too. Um, also nice to see the, uh, the marshes because we kind of know what those are going to become later on. And then as we get to Trout Bend, I liked this scene because it was really reminiscent of Andy Serkis eating the, uh, you know, Gollum eating the fish raw in the Jackson trilogy. I mean, even the lighting looked the same. Um, so I thought that was quite nice to have that illusion. And it's okay if it makes us think of that Middle Earth because they want this to be, you know, a similar familiar Middle Earth. They're both based on Tolkien, right? Um, and then that movement is really easy as well, left to right, um, quite straightforward, still enjoying the ride, you know, we've gotten over that boggy bit. And then we have the first shift of the camera. So as we come up to the braids, we have the black sand, and the camera moves from the right to the left, but very, very slowly. So if the camera was to move right to the left, jerkily or quickly, it would be really jarring. We'd feel like we were going the wrong direction. This is a very gentle swoop from the right and over to the left. And I think that's because there's no movement. They're camped out, they're in their huts, um, they're sharing tea, they're extending it to the stranger, they're bonding, they're, they're joining together in, in community, you know, they're building relationships as, as well as, you know, growing as character arcs and feeling tighter and closer and you feel that bond kind of um, solidifying, which is really lovely. So the camera matches that. We have this kind of slow arrested development, this, this right pan that doesn't move us forward, it sits us still for a minute because they're stuck in the weather. And then the next shot we've got is a static, full on, not moving, until the stranger looks up at the stars and then the camera pans up with him and looks up at the stars. So again, it matches. And of course it ends on that moon, which I'm sure the, the theorists that think he's the man in the moon will, will love that moment. Um, but it's just a beautifully shot scene. So it is a montage, which we see in films all the time, you know, usually training montages and things like that. And a montage is just where you have lots of little scenes smushed together to compress time. So we've talked about compressed timelines. We have to cover a lot of ground, literally and figuratively, in this instance. So a montage is a really beautiful way to do that. And having the traveling song be the arc that carries you from A to B while talking about a map, while referencing the lore, while building relationships, and while the camera is moving in a way that moves us forward but also suggests it's difficult sometimes, really beautifully done. So I thought that was a, a lovely, lovely scene. So the second scene I want to take a look at is the dinner uh, between Gagalit and Durin. Obviously there's other people at the table too, um, but we get this beautiful establishing shot knowing that we're going into the land of the elves. Uh, it's dark, it's beautiful. The wide shot of the table is really warm lighting, it's really well framed. You feel, you know, cozy, lovely, um, quite welcomed to the table. So we then have this straight in discussion between Gilgalad and Durin with their glasses raised, ready to toast, when Gilgalad kind of jumps at him and is like, you're quite busy. Do you want to tell me what's going on in Casa Doom? Um, his, his glass still raised and Durin is like, hmm, all right, you know, you can kind of see a little shift in his face, but you also see a shift in the camera. Um, so we get this shot straight on Durin. He's framed right in the middle of the shot and he has his two guards behind him framing him. So it feels quite, whew, you know, steady, intense. Um, you know, there aren't guards directly behind Gilgalad. 
so we do have the, and they're in the full face armor as well. So it is quite imposing. So we have a really strong, steady shot on Durin that I feel like is setting him into the scene because the next few seconds of shots are the back and forth between Gilgalad and Durin. And as they're having this back and forth, the shots are getting closer, closer, closer. You know, it's a, it's a profile shot of Gilgalad and it's zooming in ever so slightly as he accuses, you know, to what do you credit this new invigoration? I could ask the same of Lyndon. It pins back to him, full face shots. So we have a profile and a full face. I feel like that alone is quite telling. Um, the profile of Gilgalad means we can't see everything. I do feel like this whole scene is kind of setting us up to be uncertain who to trust. There's a lot going on, right? We're not entirely sure what the motivations of the elves are. We're not entirely sure that Durin is sharing everything. We know Elrond has kept a secret, um, but we don't know if he has all the information. So there's a lot of uncertainty going on. And I think that's the point of this scene is to kind of solidify that. You don't know who to trust. So having the, the profile of Gilgalad just kind of sets that up. And then we have the full face of Durin, uh, and that's lovely to like see the full face, but he's not really paying attention. He pulls this thing out of his beard, you know, he's, he's having a bit of a laugh, but there's no zoom, there's, there's just a static shot. Then as the intensity starts to increase, we have a back and forth. Then we have a slow pull in to each of their faces as the conversation goes. We have a moment of, of Elrond trying to kind of appease the situation, and that's a wide shot with a little bit of a zoom into Elrond, but most of it is quite wide, meaning take a breath, we're all at the table. Then it comes back and it's down to Gilgalad and Durin. And as they're having this back and forth about their honest inquiry, um, the shots are getting tighter and tighter. So they're right on their face and a tiny bit of a zoom in, right on their face, a tiny bit of a zoom in. Then we have a pause. Durin takes his hand, puts the glass down. Where did you procure the table? The table literally turns, right? <laughs> I mean, literally and figuratively. It doesn't physically shift, although it does change hands shortly. Um, but we have this really physical pause that he puts his hand on the table. Where did you procure this? The camera pauses. The, the mini zooms stop. Then we have static shots looking at these characters. We have Durin full on, framed well with the, the guards on either side, um, telling the story of how sacred this stone is and how important it is. As he gets more into that story, we have a really slow zoom in, so it doesn't feel combative. It feels very thoughtful, very serious, very sincere. This passing look from Elrond to move our gaze from Durin to Gilgalad. So it's the camera matching Elrond, having us look to the end of the table. And then we have this thoughtful moment from Gilgalad that's quite political, saying, you know, forgive our sacrilege. Of course, we have to send it home with you. So there's just this moment of intensity, paused, tables turn, and the camera relaxes along with us. What's really telling to me at the end of this is there is a moment uh, after they settle that, the table must go home with you, that they have a toast. And they say to the union of our two peoples, they raise their glasses. The camera at that moment is Durin's eyes. We are sat in Durin's seat looking at the table. I mean, it's even lower perspectively, so we are in the dwarf perspective, looking up at Gilgalad. I've watched it a few times. At no point do we have that I'm sat at the table in any other way than we do there. 
So we don't get to be Gilgalad. We don't get to be Elrond, Celebrimbor, none of them. Um, we're sitting there in Durin's place looking up at Gilgalad. That has to be purposeful. Um, I don't yet know the reasons because we don't know where this is going, but that feels very purposeful to have the only perspective that they give us as first person to be Durin. I like that it puts us in that place because it's as if we're all kind of sharing this joke together. It is at the elves' expense when we later have the payoff about the table. Um, it does kind of put us aligned with the dwarves, which I think is a good move at this point. Most people are really liking the dwarves, and it's it's a, a good shout to kind of tie that together and, and have a joke, but not at the dwarves' expense. And this one is kind of at the elves' expense, but really well handled. So the whole point of that scene, in my, my eyes, is uncertainty. We don't know who to trust, we don't know what's going on, but there's, there's a lot of movement here, slow power-wise, and the camera really matches that and really tells that story alongside. Thank you for joining me here at the kids' table in Linden while we try to figure out what the grown-ups over there exactly were talking about during this episode. So let's start by reviewing, okay, reviewing what we were told. We were told, first, that the elves are fading, their immortal souls dwindling, and that soon they shall all become nothing, and this process will be irrevocable within months, right? And to make it worse and to confirm that this evil has come upon the elves, the great tree of Linden has been corrupted, right? We see the black corruption running up the tree. The life of the tree is failing, which proves that the light is failing. The life of the Eldar in Middle-earth failing, really horrible. They are facing two terrible alternatives, as Gilgalad very patiently explains. One is that they all fade and die in Middle-earth, in which case the bad guys win. Or alternatively, they have to leave Middle-earth before they all fade and die, in which case the bad guys win. So this is pretty bad. But wait, wait, there is an alternative to this. So, and I know just the situation described was already difficult for many people I know uh, to swallow, right? But wait, wait, we can get around this problem. And Celebrimbor has informed us that we can get around this problem by, through mithril. If we gather vast quantities of mithril, which have uh, the light of the last Silmaril somehow infused by ambient power from elf, unnamed elf heroes and strangely stationary Balrogs. Um, anyway, but there's the mithril. Right? And if you bathe in the light of the mithril, so we're going to make enormous elvish mithril tanning beds, and the exposure to the light of the mithril is going to solve the problem, and then everything will work out fine. Right? Now, I've not done extensive market research on this yet, but based upon some anecdotal evidence I have collected over the course of this week, I have seen two things. First, people who don't know anything about Tolkien 
seem to have been perfectly fine with this episode <laughs> from what I've heard. They didn't have a single problem with all of this stuff. Um, but if you are anything like most of the Tolkien fans that I have spoken to over the last week, your reaction to all of these things that I was just summarizing is the general sensation, like Welcome to Crazy Town uh, is kind of the subtitle of Linden here, right? What exactly is going on? How do we understand this? I do think that there are a couple different ways that we can understand this, and I want to walk through this together. So the first thing I want to do, yes, there are lots of deviations from the way Tolkien's word, world works that we're told about in this sequence, right? That whole list of things I just gave contains many, many deviations from Tolkien's world, right? Now, on the one hand, of course, as we've discussed many times in Rings and Realms, the mere fact of making a change is not a crime, right? Nor does it mean that they're abandoning Tolkien and leaving the world behind, right? But this is some, this, these are deep waters, right? There's some serious stuff going on here in this episode. I want to look at a few of the things that they say, compare it to what we see, to what we know from Tolkien's world, and look at the pattern that those deviations form. Because I think if we don't just, if we can overcome the reaction of merely perceiving that there are so many differences and look at the patterns in those differences, I think a clearer picture emerges. So let's begin by looking at Elrond's conversation with Durin when he's explaining to him near the end of the episode about what needs to happen. Elrond explains the rather alarming incipient fading of the elves to Durin. What he tells him is our immortal souls will dwindle into nothing, slowly diminishing until we are but shadows swept away by the tides of time. Now, um, for most of that little speech, it sounds exactly like what, in fact, Tolkien says, right? As I was listening to it the first time, I was kind of nodding along, right? They will dwindle into nothing. Yeah, pretty much. Slowly diminishing until they are but shadows swept away by the tides of time. Yes, yes, the fading of the elves so that nothing but a memory remains of them in the primary world, right? So that the, there's only just sort of legends and recollections of the elves among the men. These are, this is the, the concept that Tolkien started his entire writing career with way back when he was like barely 20 years old. Um, he was very moved by the idea of the elves that had faded and diminished over time, right? And that the elves are going to fade and diminish eventually was part of the core element of his story. So that's almost exactly right. But it is very importantly wrong as well. There is only one element of Elrond's speech, which is not only a little bit wrong, it's quite alarmingly wrong, but it's one detail. Um, and that's the bit that I just skimmed over in my second discussion of it. He says, our immortal souls will dwindle into nothing. That's the problem. It's not their souls that diminish into nothing. It's their bodies that fade and diminish. Uh, we know that over time, Tolkien talked about this quite a bit. Um, it's the, the souls, they have in Elvish, a fea, which means their spirit, and a hroa, which means their body. And it's their hroar, their bodies, that are getting, they're fading, literally fading, like becoming invisible over time. Their spirits consuming their bodies until their bodies won't remain anymore and they will be invisible, intangible spirits for the rest of time. And that's why the humans don't remember them anymore and why they've gone away. 
Um, but Elrond says, because apparently Gilgalad and Celebrimbor believe that it's the immortal souls of the elves that are going to fade, that are going to diminish into nothing. That is not right, right? That is untrue. Again, their statements are almost correct, but they are significantly incorrect. Now, this brings me then to the second point, the cure, the bathing in light from the Silmaril, right? Okay, so it isn't just that this doesn't make sense. I mean, that's true. It doesn't make any sense, right? But the way that it fails to make sense is a very, very conspicuous one. Notice, notice how this works. Notice what lies behind this. The elves are in Middle-earth. They stayed in Middle-earth. They did not go back to the Undying Lands. And now they believe, having not gone back to the Undying Lands, they are, in fact, in a sense, dying now. And there's only one thing that can cure them, and that is exposure to the light of the Undying Lands. If only they can, you know, get some of that unlying, Undying Land mojo, right, uh, then they would be restored. Then they would, they would, they would not, they, they too would now be undying again, right? That is a very conspicuous story pattern. Because, of course, those of you who know Tolkien's stories may remember that's almost exactly how the Numenorean story works. They are mortal. They're mortal men. And they grudge their mortality. And they look with increasing envy at the undying lands, where the undying live in eternal bliss. And they start to say, why shouldn't we go to the undying lands? Don't we merit the same eternal life? that the elves and everybody living over there in the Undying Lands have. We want to go to the Undying Lands and not die. And the elves come and try very patiently to explain to them, it doesn't work that way. The Undying Lands have no power to confer undyingness upon people, right? They're called the Undying Lands because they're the lands where the undying people live. It's not an, an element. It's not uh, an essence of the land that confers that. And yet, Celebrimbor and Gilgalad are convinced and have convinced Elrond, apparently, that that's exactly what's going to go on here. That if some element, in this case the light of the trees, right? Well, the light of the trees, which was contained in the Silmaril, which was then stuck in the other tree, which then gets infused into the ore, which can then be in some way, I don't know, amplified by some kind of alchemical process into the, what, I don't know, some kind of full power uh, Valinorian light bath, right? Um, that, that, the light of the Valor, if you're going to be exposed to the light of the Valor one more time, it's not just nonsense. It is a very particular kind of nonsense. It's exactly the kind of nonsense that the Numenorians believed, and that was a serious problem and a sign of their coming fall. Um, that's very conspicuous. So both of these things are very conspicuous. They're almost completely right about the fading process, and they're wrong in a very, very, um, a very interesting, a very suggestive way, right? Because, again, it's not just Numenor. Even you think about the Nazgul. Think about the rings of power themselves. What are the rings of power going to offer to the different creatures, right? It offers to men. We can solve your mortality problem, right? We can give you un more power and unending life. Your power need not end in the way that the power of humans always does end with death, right? 
to the elves. What do the elvish rings of power give them? What do they offer them? The ability to stop the fading, to stop time, to stop change, right? To prevent time from grinding on and the ages moving forward in this ineluctable way towards the diminishing of the elves. The fact that this story that Elrond is being told and that we're listening to here, right, uh, starting after this dinner party, um, the fact that we are being told a story which sounds exactly like a setup for the Rings of Power makes me think there's something going on here. And that maybe this whole scheme about bathing in the light of Mithril might be a load of crap from the beginning here, right? Now, this leaves us basically with two interpretive options, I would say. One interpretive option that is for us as readers, right? For us as viewers of the show, how do we react to all this stuff we're being told here in episode five? One option is to say, the show has gone completely off the tracks, right? I mean, they were deviating from events in Tolkien's world, but the themes were pretty close and everything, but now all of a sudden, whoo, this is a different world I don't even recognize, right? Where, where elves, their immortal souls are going to diminish, diminish to nothing in the natural course of events, and, uh, but they can reverse this by zapping themselves with mithril light? Like, that's bizarro, right? So either the, the show has gone off that particular cliff, right? Or there's another explanation. Or there's some kind of conspiracy involved, right? There's another way to read this that makes sense of all of these things. Let me lay out for you my version of that alternative reading. Okay, so first, the fading. Don't forget, as I explained before and talked about in episode zero, they don't yet really understand the fading. The elves who chose to stay in Middle-earth don't know what that's going to mean. They're only just figuring out how the fading of the firstborn is coming about and what that's going to look like. So that means they would be susceptible to deception on that point, right? They will have observed, doubtless, by now, in the Second Age, some of these things, some of the signs of fading, of diminishing, have a sense of the way in which the years of the sun in Middle-earth are wearing upon them and changing them, right? But they don't know where it's going to go. They don't know where it's headed. Just as they don't know what the future, their future, what future are they choosing in staying in Middle-earth and not returning to Elvenholm, not returning to the Undying Lands, right? So, only one detail has been changed. If somebody convinced them, yes, you, you're starting to fade. And you know what? It's about to get much worse. Soon your immortal souls themselves are going to start fading. They don't have any data to contradict that because they've never experienced this before, right? So if somebody were to tell them that this was how it was going to work and they believed it, it's... About, so again, what we see in their description is about 95% accurate, but that 5% is a crucial 5%. The light scheme itself doesn't just sound like a deception, 
it sounds like exactly the same kind of deception that we see again and again. The ways in which the Numenorians deceive themselves, the way in which the future Nazgul are going to be deceived into taking the rings of power and believing it's going to just extend their life and extend their power, right? It's a lie. Well, it's most of a lie. It's technically true. They will be powerful, and they will be around functionally forever, right? And yet, they are being deceived. And I rather suspect that the elves, too, are being deceived, that this mithril thing is not true and is not going to work. But there's something else. Remember, what is it that absolutely convinces Gilgawa that all of this is true? What is the reason that he does not even question the fact that a very, very serious fate has come upon the elves of Middle-earth? It's the tree, the corruption of the tree. We can see that Gilgalad so identifies the elves with the tree that he says, when he talks about the corruption of the tree, he talks about our corruption, right? He identifies the elves with the tree. Not, I think, in a cause and effect relationship. I don't think he's saying, if only we could cure the tree, then the elves would be fine, right? Like the, as if the sickness of the tree were actually causing harm to the elves. It's rather, it's an indicator. It makes explicit, it makes outward the fears, right? The suspicions that they have. He has been told, right? Someone has told him. Um, he has come to believe that the elves are in deep, deep trouble and that they're headed straight for destruction, straight towards death even, right? And all he has to do is look at the tree and he sees that death coming upon the tree. It's a confirmation. It's obviously true. Look at the tree. And so here is one of the most conspicuous things of all. When we put all of this stuff together, what we begin to see is a shape that exactly fits something that we have already been shown in the previous episode. When they are in prison, uh, Halbrand and Galadriel talk about politics, and Halbrand gives Galadriel some suggestions. And Halbrand suggests that if you want to make somebody do what you want them to do, what you need to do is you need to work on their fears. You need to give them a way to master their fears, whatever it is they most fear, and then you will be able to master them. And that seems exactly what is happening here. The fears of the elves, the fears that Gilgalad already had, have been fanned into flame by this, by some misleading information, right, about where the diminishing of the elves is heading to, right? And then guess what? Oh, lo and behold, a solution to the problem is handed to them, right? Gilgal, or sorry, not Gilgalad, Celebrimbor somehow figures out, I don't know exactly where he got this idea, but Celebrimbor somehow figures out that there's a solution, that all of their, they need not worry about the whole diminishing thing, right? The elves will be fine, and all of the, the bad consequences can be averted if only they can build a huge mithril tanning salon, right? Um, it's exactly the pattern that Halbrand was saying. I think that this is eventually going to be the payoff to what was being planted there by Halbrand in that prison scene. But now, we have to look, what is the result of this? That is, what are the consequences, the direct consequences of Gogalad and Celebrimbor believing all these things, right? What is the consequence? What's the result? What happens as a result of their belief?
Well, there are a couple things, right? One result is that they get together with the dwarves and combine to build with marvelous speed these huge furnaces, right? This huge forge, which we have absolutely every textual reason to believe are going to be the forges where the rings of power are going to be forged. That's one thing. This is the direct result of them believing all these things is the rapid acceleration of the Rings of Power project, right? And by the way, what's the, another side? That's the primary result. But there's also an interesting side effect. The interesting side effect is gathering together vast quantities of mithril, which, again, I don't believe is going to cure anybody of anything because, again, the undying lands don't really work that way. So I don't really believe that. Right? But we do have a plan to bring together vast quantities of mithril. Well, in The Lord of the Rings, Gandalf does mention that Sauron greatly covets mithril and has had his servants gathering it from wherever they can find it for a long, long time. Now, we're never told exactly why Sauron covets it. We know that one of the rings of power is made from mithril. That's Nenya, Galadriel's ring. But... Um, well, that wouldn't take all that much mithril, you wouldn't think, right? But So why is it that Sauron covets uh, mithril so much? Well, we're never told in The Lord of the Rings. Tolkien never says why Sauron coveted mithril so much. Um, but, again, um, the two results both seem to point in the same direction to me, and that is towards Sauron. We know that the Rings of Power, the Rings of Power project that Celebrimbor is going to undertake is done at the advice and with the assistance of Sauron in disguise. He disguises himself in a fair form named Anatar, the giver of gifts. And he comes among the elves and says, I am here to help you uh, and to enable you to thrive in Middle-earth and to make Middle-earth beautiful, right? And we have, uh, and, and so what do we see? The Rings of Power process is already underway. The furnaces that are designed to that will be producing the rings of power are already in production. And here's another thing. The tree, the corruption of the tree. Remember in episode five when we saw those black veins of corruption winding their way up from the roots of the tree, up the stem of the tree, and into the leaves? Do you remember what that looked like? Remember where we've seen something almost exactly like that before? Where, what we saw was in episode one when the trees of Valinor were destroyed at the darkening of Valinor by Melkor, right? And we saw those veins of darkness crawling up the tree of light until all was darkened and the light of the tree went out. And it looked exactly like this. There in Valinor, one of the greatest servants poisoned the trees and destroyed them. Here, I'm going to go out on, him and, out on a limb and guess, I think that Sauron himself or one of his servants has also poisoned the tree. This corruption looks too identical. I don't think it's just happened to reflect the diminishing of the elves. Indeed, I think that quite impossible because the diminishing of the elves is not the product of any attack by the enemy. It is the natural consequence of the way Iluvatar and the Valar have established Middle-earth to be. 
Um, it, just as the Numenorians are not being cursed with mortality, it's part of how Iluvatar designed human beings to be, right? But their fear is being manipulated. Gilgalad's fear is being manipulated. And the poisoning of the tree has confirmed everything to, to, to Gilgalad that all of this is happening, right? Um, now, an objection that many people might have is, but wait a second, in the text it says that Gilgalad was not deceived by Anatar. I don't think Gilgalad has to be deceived by Anatar. I think that Gilgalad is being manipulated, but not deceived. Celebrimbor has been deceived. Um, I believe that Anatar is already there, that Anatar has deceived Celebrimbor, and that Celebrimbor has given his conclusions to Gilgalad, and Gilgalad has accepted those. Gilgalad has no reason to be skeptical of Celebrimbor when Gilgalad clearly has anxieties, uncertainties. How are they to fight the darkness? He is doubtless aware that the diminishing is beginning, and he doesn't, they, none of them understand it, right? It's certain to feel like a threat to him. And now here comes Celebrimbor, who says, according to my research, I have found a way that we can stop this, that we can fix this problem. And Gilgalad has apparently believed Celebrimbor. Why shouldn't he, right? Um, so there, I don't think there need have been any interaction between Anatar and Gilgalad as of yet. Now, there are consequences to this reading. The number one consequence of this reading is that it makes Gilgalad look like a bit of a fool. Gilgalad has been duped, not directly by Anatar, but we see him give in to a kind of weakness. We see him give in to fear, to be ruled by fear instead of by faith, again, to use Galadriel's terminology, right? And in the short term, this is inevitably going to make Gilgalad look weak, look disappointing, right? I think he's going to overcome it in the end. Gilgalad, like all of the characters in this story, have a long arc ahead. Let's not forget, we've only seen about 10% of the show so far, right? Um, but nevertheless, I do acknowledge that that's a significant consequence uh, to this reading. Um, also, it means that Sauron is none of the people that we've seen so far. Another consequence of this understanding of the show is that it makes Elrond look like a tool. I mean, we've talked about his friendship with Durin and how I find that a very compelling relationship. It's one of the really beautiful things. And we would find that that whole friendship is being, well, not undermined in itself, but used, right? Um, it's being made the instrument of what is ultimately Sauron's deception and Sauron's plan. And that would be sad, right? It would be sad for that to happen, and it would be sad for Elrond to come off looking like a tool uh, and being manipulated successfully like this. I do think, however, that there's a way out of that, um, as it is my suspicion that it's Elrond himself who is going to be at the heart of unraveling this deception. Um, so I'm hoping for good things from Elrond in the end with this. So thanks for listening to my reading. My argument in short, is that very few of the things we were told in episode five are actually true. Answer, through cold and through frost, that not all who wonder or wonder are lost. One of the most exciting things about episode five, of course, is that it contained 
one of the, a proto-Hobbit poem. And of course, as many people know, I love the poetry in Tolkien's works. It's one of my favorite parts. And so I was delighted. Of course, the music has been wonderful through the series so far, but I was delighted to get a song with lyrics that we could discuss. So let's do a quick overview of the song because I'm really interested in the themes that it gets involved with. Now, the first stanza has been of great interest to many people. The sun is fast falling beneath trees of stone, the light in the tower no longer my home, past eyes of pale fire, black sand for my bed, I trade all I've known for the unknown ahead. Now, a lot of people have been really focusing there on sort of interpreting, like what are they referring to, right? Trying to figure out where on the map they're discussing. Um, I'm not sure exactly what they mean by all of these things, and that's not what I want to focus on. I want to kind of take a step further back and look at the bigger picture. I will note in passing, the light in the tower no longer my home is to me the most tantalizing line in that stanza. There was a tower that used to be their home? Uh, where was that? How did that work? I wonder if maybe we'll learn more about that at some point. That would be interesting. But, but look at the big picture. What is this stanza about? Right? We have this fading imagery, right? The light, the sun is fast falling. So we, have, we start off with a sunset, right? And then we're talking about them going past things. It's like as if on their migratory journey, right? Past eyes of pale fire, black sand for my bed. I trade all I've known for the unknown ahead. That last line is what tells us what this stanza is really about, right? The, sort of the attitude of this stanza. It's not just talking about we're going on a migration, on our normal migration, right? I trade all I've known for the unknown ahead. The interesting thing to me here is that I see from this first stanza on through the rest of the song, not a natural expression of the migratory existence that we see in the Harfoots in this show, but something quite different, and indeed something in flat contradiction to that closed migratory loop, right, that the Harfoots are apparently in. When you spend one season in the place where you usually spend that season, and then you pack up to go to the next camping spot, and we can see on the map the little marks for the camping spots where they always stop, right? There's a lot of unknown in their journeys, like unknown dangers that lie between point A and point B. But point B is not unknown, right? It's quite the opposite of unknown, right? And yet the song speaks of trading all you've known for the unknown ahead. It's about journeying, but it's about a very different kind of totally open-ended journeying, right? Into the unknown. And this choice to trade that which is known for the unknown ahead. And now we get the first chorus, which is where things start getting really strange. Call to me, call to me, lands far away. For I must now wander this wandering day, away I must wander this wandering day. The phrase wandering day, um, which is the title of the song in the uh, soundtrack, again, if, if you're kind of not paying close attention to the lyrics, it's easy to catch the wandering references, right? Wander this wandering day, wander this wandering day, and just kind of associate it with the, uh, with the migration, right? Especially since we're getting migration travel montages, right, during this song in episode five. But I think that in the context of the first verse, the phrase this wandering day has already been transformed, right? It's already different from what we might think it's not the wandering day like now is the day when we travel to our next point in our migratory wanderings, right? 
No, it's not that kind of wandering. It's a totally different kind of wandering as we saw in the first, stan in the first stanza. Now, you look at the beginning again of this chorus. Notice who, who, whom is being addressed by this, right? Who is this, who is this song being addressed to? And the answer is the lands far away themselves. Call to me, call to me. It's, a, it's, a, it's an imperative, right? It's a command. Who's being commanded to call to the speaker of this song, to the singer of this song, right? Who's, who's receiving that command? The lands. Call to me, call to me, lands far away. Notice the direction there, right? This is not the person saying, these lands are calling to me. Statement of fact, right? I'm being called to by these lands, so I must wander, right? That would fit with what we saw at the end of the first stanza. I trade all I've known for the unknown ahead. Well, why would you do that, right? Why do you make that trade? Oh, well, because the land's far away, they're calling to me, and I got to answer, right? That would all make perfectly, perfect sense. That would fit together. Now, mine, even that would not be the same by any means of the normal migratory wanderings, right? Um, that would be still a tangential departure off of, the, uh, off of the circle of migration, right? But that's not even what is being said here. The command is for the lands to call to the speaker. It originates in the speaker. Call to me lands far away. Why should they call to you? For I must now wander this wandering day. Away I must wander this wandering day. The desire to wander originates in the speaker, right? Okay. So what's going on there? Now, next verse, right? In the next verse, of drink I have little and food I have less. My strength tells me no, but the path demands yes. My legs are so short and the way is so long. I've no rest nor comfort, no comfort but song. Would seem to push, this verse seems to push in a different direction, right? The emphasis in this stanza is all about the inadequacy, the perceived inadequacy of the speaker, right? They, they don't have the resources, right? Drink, food, strength, right? All of these things are lacking. Little food, sorry, little drink, less food, right? And uh, the, their strength is saying no, but the path demands yes. Again, as if now the, the, the path is making a demand on them, right? There is this journey that they must make. There's some kind of compulsion. My legs are so short and the way is so long, um, and I, I love the rhythm of that line. My legs are so short and the way is so long. Um, by the way, that I believe to be the most perfect and representative metrical line of the entire song, for the record. But anyway, um, that line is, um, again, it, it, it shows, again, that awareness of the speaker's inadequacy, even on a kind of intimidation. So we were saying that the desire to wander seemed to be originating from the speaker. And yet it's, it's clearly not just to please the whims of the speaker, right? This is not a confident like, oh, I just love to wander and everything is lovely, right? There is this kind of compulsion, necessity, perhaps, would be a better way to say it. A kind of necessity in the, that the speaker perceives, despite the fact that the speaker is well aware that she has very few resources and is perhaps herself inadequate to this journey that she feels called to, right? And that she has no comfort, no rest, nor comfort. No comfort but song. It's only song that gives her comfort. And what is the song? What does the song do? Well, we get that springs us back to the chorus again, right? 
Um, and so we return to the chorus, which is not exactly the same as the previous chorus, though very similar. Um, we return to the chorus with this context, that it's this song that is the only thing that brings her comfort on this journey. Sing to me, sing to me, lands far away. Oh, rise up and guide me this wandering day. Please promise to find me this wandering day. Once again, all of these are commands that are being given directed at the lands far away, right? So they're not, she's not just instructing the lands far away to sing to her, which, remember, sing to her the comforting song, right? Which was the only comfort that she had, right? So she's not just getting, asking the lands far away to sing to her again, as if to renew the calling, whatever it is, that's leading her to go on this uh, non-migratory journey, right? But then the second, the next two lines of the chorus make even higher demands on the lands far away. Oh, rise up and guide me this wandering day. That's kind of a weird thing for lands to do, especially lands far away, right? How are they going to rise up and guide her, right? Please promise to find me this wandering day. Even more emphatically reversing the relationship, right? I mean, if there's a relationship between you and lands far away, you're supposed to find them. That's why you go on a journey, right? To find the lands far away. No, no, no. She's, she wants the lands far away to find her. Um, so it's a fascinating relationship between the person who's doing the wandering, who's headed off, who's giving up all of that which is known for the unknown ahead, right? Uh, but, and, and we see her originally telling them to call her, right? And now even more clearly, guide me, promise to find me this wandering day, right? There is something, there is something there. There is a perception of some kind of, some kind of goal, some kind of destiny. This is what gives her comfort, right? Um, when, despite the fact that she has no resources, right? And then in the final verse, we get a response, a response from the lands far away. At last comes their answer, the answer of the lands, right? Through cold and through frost. So the, the answer comes through cold and frost, um, meaning I don't think it means like despite cold and frost, but like through them, like that is the, 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 the discomforts and difficulties that she's experiencing on the wandering, right, are, um, are how the answer is transmitted to her, right? And the answer is that not all who wonder or wander are lost, no matter the sorrow, no matter the cost, not all, that not all who wonder or wander are lost. Um, that's the answer. That's what finally the lands sing to her, call to her, right, in response to her song, that not all who wonder or wander are lost. Um, one of the things I've heard people say is like, well, they kind of tag that in there, right, the Bilbo reference about not all who wander are lost in the end. They did the opposite of tagging that in at the end of this song. They made it the entire culmination and focal point of this song. Not all who wonder or wander are lost. So what does that mean? How does that fit? How does that answer the, uh, the singer, right? The speaker of this song. Um, she doesn't, she's not told the reason for her wandering. She's not told where she's going. Um, it may be the lands will rise up and find her perhaps as she requested, but that's not what we see here, right? The message, the answer that they give through cold and through frost 
is that not all who wonder or wander are lost. That if you're going somewhere, you might not know where you're going. You might just be wandering and presumably wandering as well, right? But just because it looks like you have no idea, which, just because you feel like you have no idea where you're going and perhaps don't feel like you can make it to wherever it is, right? Thinking back to that second verse about the inadequacy of her resources, right? Um, but nevertheless, not all who wonder or wander are lost. Um, you may feel lost. You may feel like you're, because you are leaving behind everything that you know. You are going out of the regular circuit, right? And you are headed off into the unknown to these lands far away that you hope are going to find you when you get there, right? All of this song speaks to the kind of purpose, the kind of destiny, which you can't understand. You, can, you might believe that it's there, right? And I'm thinking here, of course, especially of Nori and her talking about the stranger, right? And her discovery of the stranger, that she was meant to find him. Um, I've been expecting, to be honest, I was expecting in, in episode three or four for Nori to be separated off. I thought Nori was going to be decaravaned, right, and have to go off with the stranger on her own. And instead, the stranger has joined them, right, and, and, and kind of become, especially after his intervention with the wolves, uh, a sort of honorary member of their clan. That's not where I thought we were headed with this, and that there's still time uh, for Nori to be called away. But I suspect that she will be called away. Um, we remember the things that Nori was saying about wondering what's out there, right? Those lines which were used as the voiceover for the very first Super Bowl trailer, right? Which we got in episode one when Nori was wondering what was out there, right? Um, the wonder that she experiences, the wondering which she has not yet started, but which I think that she will undertake, um, are going to be uh, a big part of this. So I think that we can see the expression of this, and it's all tied in with that theme of fate, with that idea of something that there is a purpose. There is, if you might be wandering, you might not know where you're going, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're lost. And that's the answer that is being given. It's not a satisfying answer, right? It's not a clear answer to this. Um, but it is, it is one that feeds hope, that high hope that Tolkien was talking about. This is a song ultimately about Estelle, um, that not all who wonder or wander are lost. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Rings and Realms. As usual, there is still so much more to talk about. I can't believe, so I didn't get a chance to talk about the sword hilt and ideas about what exactly the sword hilt means and what it's going to do. I didn't get to touch at all upon Aarian and her apparent turn to the dark side uh, there in Numenor. And I can't believe that we had a Balrog on screen and I haven't talked about Durin's Bane at all during this episode today. So there's so much to talk about and I hope that you guys will join us. There are several opportunities for further discussion even after this episode. One, if you want to join our discussion asynchronously, you can join us on Reddit. That's r slash L-O-T-R underscore on underscore prime uh, to join uh, the wonderful discussion that's going on there. 
And we also, you can join me and Maggie for a live show, Other Minds and Hands, at 4.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, we'll go over some of these other things, take questions from the audience, and, and basically try to tie up some loose ends while we're also getting ready for the next episode, which drops that very evening. And, of course, don't forget to join me and Maggie on our Twitter Spaces show at noon Eastern Time on my Tolkien Professor Twitter uh, account. We got to talk with Benjamin Walker, who plays Gilgalad, last week, and Cynthia Adai Robinson, who plays, who plays Muriel, the week before. Uh, and we will see whom we might have to join us this week for this week's show. So uh, lots of opportunities for continued discussion. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>